the Latter-day Liberty Podcast, Episode 17. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Latter-day Liberty Podcast with your hosts, Matt Kent and Daryl Portsline. We are joined today by Robin Kerner uh, in order to talk about political persuasion. Uh, Robin is actually a political and economic commentator for the Huffington Post and Independent Voter Network, along with other outlets. But he's probably best known for having coined the term blue Republican to refer to liberals and independents who joined the GOP just to support Ron Paul's bid for the 2012 presidency. Um, which is fantastic. And then he's also, his most recent uh, book is titled, If You Can Keep It. Um, And let me just real quick get the tagline for this. It's, If You Can Keep It, Why We Nearly Lost It and How We Get It Back. And uh, we want to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Robin. Hey, thanks. uh, Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be with you guys. We really appreciate it. Well, now I'm I'm guessing that most of our listeners um, will probably recognize very quickly the the, the name Huffington Post. And uh, for us to have you on our show <laughs> talking about liberty, it's probably something that's going to blow their minds. Could you give us a little background on how that happened? <laughs> on how I got to be writing on the Huffington Post, even though I'm a liberty guy. Yeah, that that kind of thing. Yeah, well, they didn't know I was a liberty guy when they invited me to write on the Huffington Post. <laughs> so that's the short answer. Um, I. Uh, I think it came out of the fact that about a decade ago, I, I set up a website called watchingamerica.com where we translate foreign news and opinion, editorials, commentary about the United States from all over the world. And that was back in the Bush days, right, when I, I, I founded that thing and set that up. Um, and a lot of liberals, progressives, really, I mean, conservatives too, but a lot of progressives really appreciated it because, you know, what we do at Watching America, certainly back then, was really showing the impact that American foreign policy was having around the world. And when Bush was the one bombing all the children, obviously a lot of the progressives weren't for bombing children, right? right back then, right. now Obama back then, change, yeah, right. But um, and they're going to be really into it once Clinton gets in. But that's a, that's another story. <laughs> so, um, so you know, uh, the. the you know, my little one-line bio at the Huffington Post is publisher of watchingamerica.com. But they invited me to start writing for them at the end of 2010, maybe 2011. And that was almost exactly the time I kind of became a liberty person. Um, I had just not long before that discovered the liberty canon, as it were, you know, Bastiat and Hayek and Hazlitt and all that stuff. And I got interested in politics and specifically interested in kind of libertarian politics. So I was given this post, this platform on the Huffington Post to speak to folks on the left, just as I was getting really turned on by the politics of liberty and therefore was supporting Ron Paul for president. And uh, you mentioned the Blue Republican there in the intro, for which thanks. And um, yeah, I wrote this article on the Huffington Post where I coined this term blue Republican, as you said, to um, refer to folks who had supported Obama. And I was kind of a, uh, I mean, I was happy when Obama won in 2008. I was in Canada at the time and I remember watching it and being so delighted that Bush's Republicans had been punished, you know, for their cronyism and their unnecessary wars and their takedown of civil rights, right? So there I was in 2011 thinking, I've got a platform to the left. I can still speak lefty because I used to be a liberal by default. All my best friends are lefties, right? Um, I'm going to make the Ron Paul case in the language of the left. And that's what I did in this article. If you love peace, become a blue Republican just for a year was the title of it. And it went immediately viral. And within a week, blue Republican, the term that I coined, was a movement 
that was the biggest coalition for Ron Paul right up until the convention. So it's an amazing thought. Um, and Doug Weed, the senior advisor at the Ron Paul campaign at the time, was very excited about this, that the biggest coalition for Ron Paul was born out of my article on the Huffington Post, and it was a bunch of liberals and independents that had said enough is enough to Obama. And because of our liberal principles against cronyism, against unnecessary war for civil rights, we're going to do the right thing and support this old white conservative Republican who actually has a track record on true liberal principles, Ron Paul. So that's what my article did. And that kind of put me on the map as a liberty person, you know, and I suppose was kind of the beginning of um, how I got to write this book. Yeah. Yeah. And to fast fast forward forward to the, to the book, what is kind of the main argument that you're trying to, to make in this book um, and, and the title to remind our listeners is if you can keep it what is the kind of the main thesis okay so you know there's hundreds of books by libertarians on how everything's gone to hell in a handbasket and we live in a tyranny and you know expositions of libertarianism there's loads of those and you know what libertarian is libertarians have been arguing for liberty for decades in this country and they're they're really bad at winning any supporters Right. I mean, look at look the extent to which they failed. And it's because they keep trying to win arguments rather than win supporters. And I coming into the liberty movement a few years ago with a background in sales, um, you know, I've got a master's degree in epistemology, which is like the philosophy of knowledge and belief and how we form our knowledge. Um, you know, it, it became clear to me that we're really bad salesmen and marketing people for liberty. Our product is liberty and we can't sell it. Um, And if we're right about the fact that everybody wants it, how bad do we have to be that, you know, we the people aren't convinced by our arguments for liberty? So I wanted to write this book to explain why is it it is that we the people have let our rights be taken down? Why is it that most of us, the non-libertarians, the rest of the country, um, stand by if these rights are so important? If we all feel we have them, why why have we, the people, failed to keep them? Unless the liberty movement understands that, we can't bring supporters over to the side of liberty. We're not going to be able to increase the liberty quotient in our nation. So I look in this book at the psychological, the cultural, and the historic reasons why Americans can't see what's in front of their faces when it comes to our loss of liberties. And once, so I kind of talk a lot about the power of the paradigm, right? This idea that what people believe, even if what they believe is wrong, um, re- or especially if what they believe is wrong, determines how they experience politics and the world around them. Unless you understand that, then, as I say, you can't kind of subvert that incorrect experience that they're having um, in a way that's going to enable you to kind of make your argument for liberty. Indeed, not make an argument for liberty, because what you want to do, as I say, is win supporters, not arguments. You want to stop having the arguments um, and start winning supporters. So, you know, it, it's an argument in a way for um, intellectual humility among liberty folks. Um, you know, Jefferson said the ultimate protection of liberty is the in, informing the discretion of the people. And the Declaration of Independence says you know, that it all starts with we the people, right? So unless we the people insist on our liberty, act accordingly, then the Constitution is just, it's just a piece of paper. The Bill of Rights is just a piece of paper. Um, so how do we make it not just a piece of paper? We make it not just a piece of paper by understanding the psychological reasons and the cultural reasons why people haven't bought what we as liberty people are selling them. 
Now that's and that's a really good. I really liked uh, your argument as far as you know the biases, and you actually mentioned a. Uh, a study in that I've heard in another interview as well. You you talked about this study that, that was done with with the the cards. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that was really fascinating to me. You know, loads of people love love this part of the book, and I, I get asked about this in a lot of interviews about it. Um, and it's good because you know it really does get to the heart of what it is that libertarians do not understand <laughs> that they need to understand because it rests at the bottom of, it's the foundation of the art of political persuasion. And so when I do my kind of day-long seminars teaching candidates and activists how to become weapons of mass persuasion for liberty, as I call it, <laughs> I, do start, I do start with this that you're asking me about. So basically in 1949, there was an experiment done at Harvard and it was called the Perceptions of Incongruity Experiment. And it kind of was a simple experiment. You had a bunch of people, the participants, who were hooked up to basic biological monitoring equipment to test their stress responses, right? So um, heart rate, for example, you know, which increases when you're under stress, sweat on the skin, which increases when you're under stress, those kind of things. So they're hooked up to this monitoring equipment, and then they are simply shown playing cards at high speed. So three of hearts, seven of spades, you know, jack of diamonds, whatever. And the participants just have to call out what they are seeing. So they call out the cards. Now, this is done, as I say, at high speed. And what the participants do not know is that the researchers are slipping in the occasional card where the red and the black colors have been switched. In other words, they might be shown a seven of hearts but it will be black, or a three of spades, but it will be red, okay? So the, the question becomes, what the experiment's trying to find out is, what is it that you actually say and therefore see when you are shown a playing card with the color, you know, wrong, right? And it turns out that if you see a red three of spades, you don't say, oh, wait a minute, that's a red three of spades. You say either three of spades or three of hearts, or maybe three of diamonds, right? In other words, you are seeing something that is not there. And the reason this experiment is so important is that it confirms something that a 19th century philosopher Goethe said, which is, you see only what you know. Now that should be counterintuitive because most of us think we have, we get our sense data and then based on the sense data that we get, you know, our experiences of the world, we form our beliefs about it, we form our knowledge about it. Well, it turns out it's the other way around. What you already know, even if your knowledge is wrong, determines not only, now this is super important, not only how you interpret the world, but the very perceptions you have of the world. The very perceptions. In other words, when those folks are looking at the three, at the um, three of spades, but it's red, they're not doing any conscious analysis to work out wrongly that it's a three of spades or three of hearts or three of diamonds. They immediately perceive it wrongly. What they already know is determining the actual direct perception. Now, what do they know? In this case, they know they're looking at playing cards. Now, their knowledge is wrong, right? But they know what a, a pack of playing cards is. So they, uh, they are in that paradigm. They're in, you could say, the playing card paradigm. So they see what they know. Now, there's another really interesting consequence of this. If I'm being shown a three of spades that's red, but I just see a normal playing card, right? Three of spades or three of hearts, three of diamonds. Then what I'm actually getting consciously is data, even though it's wrong, that's false, but that data is reinforcing 
my false paradigm, right? Because I'm seeing another true, like, true playing card, even though it's not really there. And that's further evidence for the fact that I'm in the playing card paradigm, right? right. So our paradigms cause us to see the world wrongly in ways that reinforce our paradigms. Now, if your listeners are ahead of the game here, they're already seeing why this is super important when it comes to politics, right? <laughs> because that is what's going on. When you're speaking to folks on the left, they're seeing the world differently. Speaking to folks on the right, they're seeing the world differently. So I, um, you know, this experiment kind of crudely um, is, kind of, is an empirical psychology exper experiment, right? Um, now we can put people in brain scans and do this on them, and we can actually see the neurology of what's going on. Uh, now... I go into this detail at the beginning of the book because if you want to become effective at political persuasion, you need to get through that, right? How it like selling liberty is an easy sell. Like nobody doesn't want to be free, actually, right? But because everybody's got these paradigms that are causing them to see things that aren't there or to believe things that aren't so, most of selling liberty is getting them to unbelieve the false things they already believe, to unsee the false things they already see. That's a lot more of our job as liberty folks. So that's why I go into that. And I mentioned the um, fact they're all hooked up to this biological you know, monitoring equipment. Even as they are consciously seeing cards that aren't there, they, they are exhibiting physiological stress responses. So their body is in discomfort. And it turns out that you know, our, our, our whole physiology and our neurology is kind of geared to hold on to our paradigms, right? So paradigms are kind of sticky. Now, once in this experiment, the rate at which the cards are showed is reduced, so they get slower and slower, until eventually the discomfort gets so high and people are start to go consciously are aware that they're, they're looking at something weird, but what's going on? And then at various points in the experiment, the participants will get that hold on a second, that's not a legitimate card. The color's switched out. Now, at the point that they actually consciously see it, right, the stress is eliminated because now they're not in the playing card paradigm, right? They're able to see actually what is in front of them. And from then on, they call accurately and the stress goes. So how do we, in arguing for or winning supporters for liberty, kind of get folks out of the Ill, their illiberal paradigm, whether they're kind of on the authoritarian cultural left or the, you know, authoritarian political neocon <laughs> right. How do we get them out of that so that they can, you know, um, enjoy liberty? Right. Well, and the, so the interesting thing about that is that it, the fact that, that, I mean, if it is all, it is causing that um, discomfort, it is, you know, comforting to me to know, well, that is in there somewhere. Like they, they do recognize right. the discrepancy somewhere and it's, you know, you just have to unlock it, I guess. Right. Now, uh, now what happens is in the political context, if, if you can rationalize away the problem, right, and I actually go into a specific experiment where this is done, right, um, where you put a bunch, this is a different kind of experiment, um, you put 30 Democrats and 30 Republicans in a brain scan and get them to listen to self-contradictory statements by Kerry and Bush. This was done, obviously, a few years ago, right? And you actually see how they deal with the cognitive dissonance. And every single one of them lets their guy off the hook, explains away their guy's error. <laughs> but the error of their opponent's candidate, right? The opposition. Um, to reinforce whatever negative views they have of the opposition, right? So the, the, the judgments are completely different based on political tribalism. Now, what we can see in the brain scanner is that this discomfort is not resolved by actually seeing what's true, right, in general, it's resolved by explaining away the discrepancy in some other way, 
Right. So, yeah, there is discomfort, but actually dealing with the discomfort in a way that pushes someone towards truth rather than back toward their paradigm, um, that's a challenge. Gotcha. Now, do you have do you have any tactics that we can use to to help and maybe maybe not even help others but what can i use on myself to make sure that i'm not stuck in a paradigm when i'm having these discussions with people okay well here's the thing we all are and um we be it's impossible to see the world except through the concepts we use to see the world right um now that sounds kind of tautological because it is but now this isn't just to be clear this isn't a state this isn't a statement about um kind of relativism. This isn't like a moral relativism. This isn't saying there's no absolute or objective truth. This is just saying in as far as we're physical beings, you know, on this earth using these physical brains, our access to that objective truth is inherently filtered through a paradigm. It's inherently at least, it is inherently subjective, right? You could put it that way. So the first thing is to recognize that that's so. Um, the f you need to observe your own reactions, right? Uh, you need to work to actually, um, and this can be difficult for people, you need to work to challenge what you already believe. You see, one of the reasons that people generally, libertarians included, aren't changing a lot of minds is because once we get into an argumentative situation, i.e. we're in an oppositional situation where we're experiencing ourselves as being right to somebody else as being wrong, then once we're in that, Everything about us is geared to being right. Like when we have proven our point, right, in the argument, we get a massive dopamine hit, like we've taken a shot of heroin, right? If you actually put someone in a brain scanner, you can see that we really like being right. Now, to, be, to do what you're asking here, you've got to in start to enjoy being wrong. You've got to actually say, look, I don't just want to be on ego trips experiencing myself as being cleverer than the next guy. I actually want to change this nation for the better. I actually want to increase liberty. That means I need to know why other people don't get what I think is obvious or what I know. That means I need to listen to other people, if only to work out how to persuade them, um, if only to learn what it is in their experience that makes them see the world in a way that prevents them from seeing what I see. There's a certain humility about it. That to access that humility, it always helps to remember that there was a time before you knew what you knew today, but you got to where you're getting to. It didn't make you a worse person, right? Um, and that there is something you don't know, the knowing of which could change everything. That is always true for us as human beings. None of, you know, none of us is God, right? So um, a disposition of humility is really important. There are also a load of... Uh, um, kind of sales tactics that actually bear on this. I mean, salesmen say seek first to understand before being understood. If you want to increase the amount of liberty in this country, let those who aren't where you are philosophically, let them tell you how to sell them. Shut up for long enough for the customer, the opponent, to tell you what it is they care about. Because what it is they care about is, gonna, is basically where you put your common ground when you start to affirm them in where they are before they're going to respect you and trust you and your, trust your motivations enough to actually give whatever argument you're about to make a serious hearing. Unless you do that first, unless you establish some common kind of common ground, and certainly if you're talking to folks on the left, affirm the good intention, because the politics of the left are the politics of good intention, and I go into this in the book as well. Um, unless you do all of that, subconsciously they're setting a bar so high 
um, in terms of resisting what you're about to tell them, that it doesn't matter how good your facts and logic are. And anybody that's had a Facebook argument, you know, Facebook flame war, who completely made it, you know, watertight case and just never, you know, didn't change the other guy's mind, knows <laughs> that that's right. And yet we keep doing it. Why do we keep doing it? It doesn't make sense. No, that's true. And yeah, I actually um, heard a guy talking about that uh, the other day when he was talking about how he's been discussing some of these things, you know, the ideas of liberty with his children and that. And he, he was saying that, you know, he's trying very hard not to indoctrinate them. That's something I, you know, with your own children, it's, it's very difficult not to do <laughs> um, because sure. I hold my, you know, I have very, very strong opinions. Um, but he, he has said in the past, you know, and his 13 year old daughter has said, you know, well, I just can't understand how anybody could believe that way or whatever. He's tried to tell her, you know, okay, well, you know, and I, I agree with you, but you know, what if you did, you know, just let's pretend that you did b believe this for a minute and just try to see it from their side. And, and he seems, he says that that seems to be pretty effective for her as well. Right. Right. I mean, cause what we're really talking about here is human nature, right? And why we would think we could, you see, people are invested in what they believe politically. If I'm, let's say, you know, I'm a, an urban liberal and all my friends are urban liberals, then all of my relationships um, are going to be effective, affected if one day I declare I'm a libertarian and I know that all my friends think that libertarians are white supremacists, right? I mean, that's the thing, right? There are a lot of progressives who actually think that, you know, we libertarians are so callous because we don't want to help anybody, right? Um, and that obviously, you know, that just means we're kind of handing it all off to the whites who already have the privilege. The privilege. For example, if I, if that was my group of friends, if that was a prevailing sentiment, then subconsciously, even if not consciously, subconsciously, it's not actually about the politics. It's about my connection to everybody and everything in my life. And it turns out that political judgments are driven by the standing that I feel I have among my social constituents, family, friends, colleagues, right? Although we don't experience that as the reason we hold the views we do, it turns out very deeply that that drives our political views a lot more than the logic that we use to justify our views once we've arrived at them. And so for this reason, um, this is something else I go into the book, you have to understand that when you're trying to change someone's mind politically, what you're really crossing isn't a political gap usually, it's usually a cultural gap. The politics is just kind of fitted on afterwards to justify where, you know, where people are in their own kind of subculture. So, you know, unless again, unless you understand the difference between um, how we form our political judgments, which is often driven by personality traits and, and cultural things and relationships, unless you understand the difference between the forming of judgment with all of those aspects and the way that we justify our judgments after we've reached them, then again, you can't hack the judgment forming process and you can't change people's minds. All you do is end up having arguments between my justification for my view versus your justification for your view. They just clash against each other and nobody wants to be the loser, right? The problem with arguments is by definition, there's zero sum games. The art of political persuasion is to not set the game up as a zero sum in the first place, right? It's to reframe the opposition as a shared problem. And that means identifying, um, identifying, as I said earlier, the common ground. And there always is, by the way, there's 7 billion people out there. You can find a difference of principle and a, a shared principle with, with every one of them. It's just a question of, are you looking for the shared principle? 
and I urge people to do that. And yeah, I show them a little bit how to do that. Yeah, and this is something that that I personally really struggle with. So, uh, and I have to be completely honest, I haven't finished your book yet, but I'm really excited to to continue reading it because I'm hoping it can help me in some of my discussions. I'm I'm very prone to getting in those types of unproductive arguments that you talk about. Um, what th- there's kind of a positive and negative side to this question. Um, what is one piece of a ad- of advice or or one thing that you would like to see libertarians incorporate into their discussions about liberty with people? And then the corollary or the opposite, what is one thing that you wish, wish libertarians would stop talking about when they talk to people? Okay, so um, really the best answer is, kind of goes back to what I said earlier, which is listen first. L- talk to the person to find out what they really care about. What Most people have one or two um, driving issues, uh, which may be symbolic of like a whole worldview. Um, before you make your case for liberty, it's much better to actually shut up and hear what, what that thing is. Right. So, um, you know, let's say somebody who's into like minimum wage is a big thing for them, right? $15 minimum wage. If you're talking to someone on the left. Yeah. So what you want to do there is go in expressing concern for poverty, and those who are in the, uh, that, that layer of our society that is um, finding things most difficult economically, right? You don't start with capitalism and then say, hey, that's a great way of eliminating poverty. You talk about poverty per se. You establish that you care, that you have the same intention, right? Um, so I would always say reflect, the first thing, the best thing to do is to reflect back to people what they most care about. Now, if you can't do that, if you um, want something uh, more of a given, one thing that I'm a big fan of doing, and this is something that I've kind of developed, and it's a bit of a kind of a signature thing for me, is um, I, is putting love into politics, the idea of love. Uh, we, all human beings, pretty much all human beings, have an experience of love. It is uniting. It is common ground we all share. You, it is not, there is no orthodoxy of love, right? Um so when I'm talking of love, I am speaking of something that nobody can have an ideological objection to. I like to get to the, the idea in my discussions that liberty is the politics of love as well, right? And by that, I mean, everybody will tell you that, what, that they know they love someone because what they want for that person is what they want for themselves. They wouldn't actually try and force someone they love to do something against their will. So once you're talking about that, you can say, you know, that's why, you know, that's why I'm a liberty person because, you know, politically, that's liberty because love says to the beloved, as you wish, as you wish. They're the three words that mean love, but they're also the three words that mean liberty, right? Because liberty is the political system that says to everyone, as you wish, right up until the point that your wish stops the other person having his wish. So I, and the other really powerful thing about Talking about human emotion in um, political discussion, kind of getting it out of the abstract, is um, is that it subverts the expectation, right? If you are a libertarian, and salesmen do this all the time, um, if if you're a libertarian and you're talking to someone on the left and they know you're a libertarian, they're expecting you to be an uncaring capitalist, right? So if you go in talking about love, immediately they can't put you in the box that enables them to dismiss everything you're saying. 
part of this whole protecting my paradigm thing is we try and box people as quickly as we can. If we can box someone as other than who I am, then I can discount everything they say because I don't have to trust them. I don't have to trust their motivation, where they're coming from. You're kind of you're already uh, identified as dangerous to my paradigm, so I'm going to dismiss what you're telling me, right? So a great way to avoid that is to go in talking about love. So I would like libertarians to talk a lot more about love. And I would like libertarians to talk a lot less, to go to your other part of the question, um, about whatever it is that is their is the thing that turned them on about the philosophy. Because if you're selling the philosophy, the most important part of it isn't the bit that you find most persuasive. It is the bit that the person you're speaking to is going to find most persuasive, which goes back to what I said before. Listen to the topics that they talk about. Right, and that, is, uh, that really is a very powerful uh, message as well. That, one of the things that, in, that you mentioned or that you compare in your, the beginning of your book is, you know, you, you kind of compare your book to like a, you know, if you, if I were reading a book about nutrition, I would expect to get this kind of information out of it. And, uh, you know, I, I love that you, you compared it to that and that this is really, it doesn't matter how good your, um, your message is, if you can't present it in a way that they're going to be accepting it, then it's, you know, yeah, it, almost a moot point at that point. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we can still have that great experience of all being clever, li clever libertar libertarians together, right? You know, right. it's like kind of like you know group intellectual masturbation, which right. goes on all the time. <laughs> yeah, we can do that, but let's not pretend that we're saving liberty in America if we're doing that because we're doing something else. There's a place for that other thing. It's a lot of fun, and it, it forms, you know, it's part of experiencing each other and enjoying each other and having our own community, an intellectual community. There's a place for that, but it's not really where the rubber meets the road in terms of changing, saving the nation. I think this uh, message of, of of love and how you relate that to politics is is really um, really a, a, an important one for uh, specifically for for our listeners, the primary listeners of of this podcast, um, and and I think that that's because we we I'm not sure how to phrase this, but we I think our intentions are very important. Um, if we're in a discussion with someone simply kind of touching on what you've already said, but simply to get them over to our way of thinking because it will feel like some kind of victory for us. We get some kind of rise out of that. Um, that's not the right intention. So talk about in, how important is intention. And, and when you, when you talked about, you know, start with love, is it good enough? Is it good enough to just start with love because it's a good tactic or do you need to mean it? You absolutely need to mean it. Um, and, but because love is a fundamental of human nature and human experience, it so happens that by starting with what is so, it works, right? <laughs> I mean, what so works because it's what so. Does that make sense? Um, I'm thinking, actually, as you asked me that question, this podcast is called La Latter-day Liberty, right? Yep. Is it actually targeted at Mormons? It is. It is. I, the, the, the tagline is something like helping Mormons uh, realize their inner libertarian or something like that. Okay, beautiful. So then I'm going to answer the question with this. First Corinthians 13. Okay. It's the, is that wonderful verse about um, if we speak our truth, not in love, you know, even if we speak, if we even have the voice of the angels or whatever it says, then our, 
um, our voices as a clanging cymbal. And there's this beautiful verse about how we are not just called to speak truth. We are called to speak truth in love. So it's right there. It's right there in Corinthians. Um, and because, you know, and I would, I mean, risk of getting a little metaphysical, but this is probably an appropriate show for it. Um, love and truth are the same thing, right? I mean, if God is love and God is truth, you know, there's this big equation, isn't there? Um, and, you know, I think, you know, and I've seen it, you know, a lot of libertarians have this experience of, well, I met, you know, these facts are true. The logic is tight, right? So I want to shake this person who doesn't see it. Well, yeah, but no, you know, um, because we're all on a journey. And I think, I think this is an important thing too. You have to mean it because you have to respect where somebody is on their journey, right? Um, you have to know because it's true that the person you're speaking to has got a gift for you. Uh, there's a line in a, one of my favorite spiritual books that, that says, that is, God has sent you nothing but angels, which is this idea that there's some spiritual gift in every interaction we have, which I find very powerful. Um, it, it's kind of a, an, another metaphysical basis for the humility I'm arguing for, um, that you've got you've to love the person you're talking to in the sense that, you know, there's only one of you in the room, right? Um, Christians would say we're all made in God's image, all aspects of the divine. So, yeah, you have to mean it. Um, you've got to, in other words, actually, in your humility, you have to be more committed to your truth than to your liberty. Because if liberty is right, your commitment to truth will keep you in liberty, right? But, like, if you look at science, if you look at the part of human... Um, experience that has given us all these advances that we now take for granted it works it move it works because it does move towards truth and it takes more and more people with it but knowing that it's never got there if all the scientists decided that they finally worked out everything there is to work out like a lot of people do in politics right um and so there's nothing i need to learn from you all i'm going to do is now tell you what's so because you're so wrong because you're not where i am if scientists did that that'd be the end of science We'd go backwards at that point, right? So, you know, the advance to truth really does rest on, you know, for yourself and for the sharing of truth to other people, with other people, really does rest on the humility that, not, that, that is knowing that because you're human, you ain't going to get it, get there yourself in your lifetime. So in other words, fundamentally, you and the guy you're speaking to are in the same place. You're both imperfect and you're both wrong. You both don't have all the truth. So from that position, it's not that you're forcing something on someone. What you're really doing is offering them something. You're not trying to take something out of your mind. You're trying to help them clarify their own mind. You're going to accompany them on a bit of their journey that they're now on. And they may find what you're about to offer them useful. Um, but obviously, if you want to have an impact, you've got to offer it to them in a way that they can see that it's going to be useful. And that's what we need to learn to do. That is beautiful. And I, I really love that message that you, um, I, I think that's a great note to, to end on, actually, <laughs> uh, to, to, to wrap up. Uh, do you, you know, if people are interested in, in finding out more about you or, you know, some of your work in that, what are, what are some places they can go to? Facebook or, or Twitter or anything yeah. like that? Thank you. So, okay. So t on Twitter, uh, my handle, if you like, is R Kerner. So it's at R-K-O-E-R-N-E-R. -E um, but you know, the best thing to do right now is certainly to go to the website dedicated to the book, 
which is if you can keep it.us. If you can keep it.us. Now, please be aware that there are two books with the exact same title that were published in the same month, coincidentally. <laughs> so my name is Robin Kerner. Not the other one. Apparently, the other one's written by a bit of a neocon. Oh, this, no. <laughs> if you can keep it, why we nearly lost it and how we get it back by Robin Kerner. But if you go to ifyoucankeepit.us to order your copy, I will personally sign your copy. Now, you can get the book on Amazon, but you'll probably, well, you might get the wrong one and it won't be signed. So go to <laughs> ifyoucankeepit.us um, to get the book that we've been talking about. Also, um, my. Go to if you're interested in the kind of things that we're talking about with respect to, um, you know, approaching liberty through love and the kind of tactics and strategies that are effective in communicating liberty to the unconverted. Uh, go to robinkerner.com, R O B I N K O E R N E R.com, um, and you can kind of see what I do along these lines right there at robinkerner.com. And for people who are really interested in it, you can download like a free report about how to do some of this stuff. Um, and then there's, there's a DVD if people want to buy stuff. There's, you know, other stuff there. So robinkerner.com and if you can keep it.us. On Facebook, um, you can find Robin Kerner, Art of Political Persuasion. Um, and then finally, there's the, the Blue Republican Movement um, Facebook group, which is just facebook.com slash blue Republican, just do a search on blue Republican, um, and join one of the 16,000, um, members of, uh, of the blue Republican movement who are on that page. That is fantastic. And I, I will just remind our listeners that we will have all of these links, um, on the, on the show notes page for this episode. It'll be on ldlpodcast.com forward slash 17. And uh, we'll have uh, all of your links there and, and everywhere that you can find, uh, Robin, but thank you so much for joining us again, to, uh, uh, or joining us today. We really do appreciate it. Thanks, Robin. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for your time, gentlemen. <laughs>